Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Today, I sit down with Kathy Valentine, member of the iconic 80s rock band, The Go-Go's. In the early 80s, The Go-Go's made history as the first female band to ever land a number one album in America with Beauty and the Beat. Kathy's been an integral member of the band. She's co-written some of their biggest hits like Vacation and Head Over Heels. She's also played with bands like the Delphines, the Blue Bonnets, and the Textones. She's released solo work, and she's also produced music for other artists. In 2018, the Go-Go's music was featured as the soundtrack for the Broadway jukebox musical Head Over Heels, and in 2020, Alison Elwood's documentary The Go-Go's explored the band's significance and cultural impact, which encouraged the members to reunite and record their first song together in 19 years, Club Zero. Last year also marked the release of Kathy's memoir, All I Ever Wanted. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Kathy Valentine. Hi, everybody. I am so excited for today's class, and I am thrilled to welcome our guest live from her home in Austin, Texas, Kathy Valentine. Hi, Kathy. Hey, how are you? Good. Say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. Awesome. Very, very excited to talk to you and hear your story and, you know, spend the next hour and a half talking about music and life and the ups and the downs and everything that has come from your life in rock and roll. And I've got to say that I loved your book. Kathy's got an incredible memoir that she wrote called All I Ever Wanted. As I was reading it, it feels like it could have been called Rock, Roll, and Redemption. You know, there's so much ups and so much downs. And at the end of it all, you just come out like wiser with real life lessons and advice to give. And I also watched the Alison Elwood Go-Go's documentary recently and thought that that was fantastic. I think that anyone who's listening to us today, the book is required reading. Alison's film is required viewing. I would love to read a little bit from the preface of the book before we start um, the conversation, if that's okay with you. Sure. So from the book, it's a story that hasn't been told enough. The one about the young girl who decides she wants to be in a rock and roll band, then does just that. Rock and roll had saved me, soothed me, shown me there was a world of outliers succeeding in life. So before we start our conversation, whenever we're signing a new band at Atlantic, we always dream of what the pinnacle of success would look like. And the Mount Rushmore of achievements always includes the following things. Hit records, number one albums, Grammy nominations, the cover of Rolling Stone, 
headlining Madison Square Garden, all <laughs> those things. And all those things, you and the Go-Go's checked off every single one of those boxes. And you did it all in your early 20s. So crazy. Yeah. Let's go back to the beginning. Talk about your life growing up in, in Texas. Your mom was from England. Your dad was from Oklahoma. Talk about growing up with your mom and how you guys were, were outsiders who never really fit in. Yeah, I, I was a latchkey kid. I was the daughter of a single mom. Uh, I grew up in the 60s, which when I fret about aging, I always like to remember, hey, I got to be a kid in the 60s. I got to be a teenager in the 70s. I got to be a flaky adult in the 80s and get my uh, shit together in the 90s. So I always feel like I got some good decades at the right time. Anyway, going back to your question, my mom was a full-time student, uh, worked full-time, and wasn't super parenting oriented, but she loved me. I've done a lot of thinking about like, I mean, there's some dark stuff in the book. And one of the reasons I went that deep and that honest and that vulnerable was because I felt like the context of no, none of my readers was going to understand how important this band was to me and making it was to me and losing it was to me if they didn't have the context of where I came from. Where I came from was basically feeling like from a very, very young age that nobody was going to take care of me. That was my job. My job was to take care of myself, to go out there and figure it out, to make my mistakes and move on from there, to to not let sadness, abandonment, betrayal, anything that hurt, if I let it get in the way, that wasn't taking care of me. So that's kind of was my mode of operation. That was, to me, weakness meant like being an injured animal out in the, in the woods, you know, that meant that you were going to just not make it. So I wired myself to be as strong as I could and to not let any kind of emotions that might get in the way of making me feel like I was just taking care of business and moving forward. The good thing was I felt really loved. Even though I wasn't parented, I had no guidance, I had no boundaries. I screwed up a lot, but I always felt loved because I've thought a lot about like, why do some people take these adverse situations and they become like these complete, like everything's about being a victim, you know, and it's hard to shake that mindset. And I think the difference with me was even though I had a really less than ideal childhood, I did feel loved. And that's, I think the big difference, but music saved me. Like you just read, all of us turn to music at a certain age to help us feel things, to help us not feel things, to raise us, our spirits, to, you know, it's, in the moment, it's not so much about nostalgia, but for the rest of our lives, you know, it's it's this place in our heart that, that music takes us back to. And it saved me as a, as a young teen, as a preteen, and it saved me as soon as I found it and began playing and made that my single-minded purpose in life was to make it in a band. I love talking to musicians because there's always that lightning bolt aha moment of music really seeping into your being and almost being like a clarion call that this is where I need to be and what I need to do. Talk about the first time you heard Sunshine of Your Love. I didn't have an older brother or sister. So I think a lot of people, that's how they got turned on to music. My basic um, gateway was Top 40 radio, which meant I was super into bubblegum and all the top 40 hits. And there was some cool stuff. And it was all like this 
feeling of, of kind of just knowing the song and singing along with it. But when I first heard Sunshine of Your Love, I was, I think, nine years old. And looking back, you would think that's too young to have this kind of reaction to music. But I think anybody that's a parent has seen their children, how they react in very visceral ways from a very young age. So anyway, I'm in Lubbock, Texas. My mom would kind of ship me out to stay with my dad, even though I didn't see my dad at all. His family would take care of me in the summer times. And I had a cousin. And he was in his room playing that record over and over, Sunshine of Your Love. And I, I just remember it's one of my biggest memories uh, or strongest memories was sitting outside the door and just feeling something different. I've been waiting so long to be where I'm going in the sunshine of your This was a different feeling than what Crimson and Clover elicited or whatever was on the radio. It was, it, and I didn't, like I wrote in the book, I didn't really know about sexuality or subversiveness or that thing, but there was something, a different response. And it's kind of like so many of us, it's kind of informed my musical taste for the rest of my life. I, I love that kind of heavy you know, whether it's Queens of the Stone Age or ZZ Top or Howlin' Wolf, I love that kind of riff bluesy stuff, but I also love pop music and Motown and I have such a, a spectrum, but that was a new dimension. You said that when you were growing up, you know, maybe after that, you know, your teenage years that you wrote about in the book were pretty wild. There was sex, there was drugs, there was rock and roll all from a really young age. You have a great quote in the book where you say, you haven't lived until you've been on LSD when a race riot starts in your stupid school. That's all true stories. You were probably around 14 years old. Oh, I was less than that. I was, uh, and back in those days, it started seventh grade was junior high, they called it then. So I would have been probably um, 11 or 12. Yeah. That summer between sixth grade and seventh grade was when just the floodgates burst open. That's when I started drinking, smoking, doing drugs and having sex. So my mom was kind of just like either not seeing what was happening or was kind of okay with it happening. I'm not still not real sure about that, but <laughs> I was really ambitious with my book. I wanted to really trace my path and correlate it with what was happening with women and society. I was very ambitious at first. And then I started realizing that it was kind of too ambitious. And I, the real purpose of writing a book is to, for this kind, that's not an academic treatise, is um, a story. <laughs> so I, I, anything that didn't, help tell the story I had to chuck, but I tried to touchstone on it. And one of the things when I write that was that the racial stuff that was happening all around the country was a big deal, you know, and in my school, it happened all the time, the race riots. And, you know, the thing about your mom being a little bit of a hands-off caregiver in terms of her parenting style, you ask in the book, how do you misbehave if there are no limits? 
Yeah, the way I misbehaved was to steal her pot and, and uh, <laughs> leave the stems in the seeds. That was one of our one of the biggest fights I remember is her coming in outraged, screaming, "You don't, you think I don't know the difference? You think I don't know the difference?" And I look, and there's just like these stems and seeds. That was my big rebellion: was stealing <laughs> her pot and leaving stems and seeds, and thinking she wouldn't know. Talk about Greenbrier and uh, picking up your first guitar lesson with the uh, the earthy, crunchy uh, teachers, Dave, teaching guitar lessons today. What was that like? Well, you really know your stuff. I loved writing about, uh, first of all, I loved writing a memoir. I just, it was hard as it was. I, I like to say that it was the, the most thorough, deepest, effective, and cheapest therapy I've ever had. And I've had my share of therapy. You, uh, you, did, a, you did a brilliant job, Kathy. It's a brilliant book. Thank you. It was, uh, it was pretty brave. But um, I love seeing, like, everything's so fragmented. When we think back on our lives, and when you write it, it's like all these fragments start making this full picture and seeing how it all fit in and had a, a, a place to bring me and to have that vantage point of being, you know, when I started the book, I think I was 58. So be, having that vantage point. But Greenbrier was a, a free school, they called it, an alternative school. It wasn't accredited. It wasn't part of the school system. My mom pulled me out because we were so ostracized. We were in danger of me being taken away. Things had just gotten really bad. There was no place for me in that kind of norm. So, um, and that's when I really remember feeling happy. I didn't feel like an outcast. I didn't feel like we were these oddballs that would never fit in. And it was uh, basically a commune out in the country. And, and some kids lived out there with their families. I got on a bus every day from Austin and drove a 40 minute drive. It was crazy. I mean, you could do whatever you wanted. You could learn what you wanted. You could not learn. All the teachers were qualified. They all held high degrees and knew how to teach, but it was really up to the kid if they wanted to learn. And the, the philosophy was that kids want to learn. They're curious. If you just leave them alone, they will figure out what interests them. And one day, if I had time in my life, I would love to do a documentary because the kids I knew prior to Greenbrier, they're all like have these terrible lives and, or dead or stuff. <laughs> and all the kids from Greenbrier, I mean, there's one that teaches at Oxford University. There's one that does research for the Smithsonian. There's one that's a neurosurgeon. I mean, there's me. I mean, it's like, or, they, or they're successful business owners. So it's kind of, I mean, it makes you wonder, like maybe there's something to that. And I think, you know, that whole idea of just letting kids find out what they are good at and what they want to do something to it anyway sorry i, I talk a lot i should have warned you i am oh, I, I love it i love I just it go off i start going off um after rain myself in if you don't do it talk about you know being a left-handed guitar player and starting to pick up the guitar and you know your influences of keith richards and chuck berry and what, what were those early days like playing guitar I used to think when, as soon as I picked up a guitar, I knew, I knew that's what I was going to do. But when I wrote it, I, I realized that I'd made a little bit of a jump because when I started playing guitar, it was like a lot of people. It was an old classical guitar with nylon strings that were like a half inch off the fretboard. But I'm a lefty. My guitar teacher didn't ask what handed I was. He taught me some basic songs like Blowing in the Wind and This Land is Your Land, kind of the the normal things that 
people learn when they pick up a guitar back then. I didn't think to whether I was left or right-handed. It didn't even occur to me. Later on, I thought, oh, that would have been cool because it looks cool to be the other way. And I've been in trios a couple times, which I think looks super cool when there's a guitar neck that way. But anyway, I was uh, strong with my left hand. I could make chords really quickly and do a good job of that. And on my right hand, I wasn't as adept, but either way, you're going to be better on one hand than you are on the other. So I'm playing the guitar. I'm a rock and roller. It doesn't occur to me that I should get an electric guitar and plug it into an amp and be in a band. I don't make that connection. And I don't know if you want to jump here as to when I do make that connection, but... You talk about all the men. It's really interesting in your book because you say over and over again how all the male musicians were always welcoming to you and to the other female musicians that you surrounded yourself with in a way that was never patronizing, in a way that was never disrespectful or, oh, the, you know, those are America's sweethearts. Some, sometimes like the press would be a lot less respectful of your music and the band's music than the musicians were. But I, I want to fast forward a teeny bit, a couple of years to when you were in England with your mother and your grandmother and you were watching Top of the Pops and you actually saw a female musician play guitar for the first time. I did. And it was Christmas 1973. So I would have been 14, about to turn 15. I saw Susie Quattro and I'd never seen a female rock star and it blew my mind, blew my mind. I had never seen a woman looking like that, playing an instrument like that, not only holding her place in the band, but leading the band. It was like connecting two very large dots all of a sudden. It was like, I love rock and roll and uh, I play guitar and she was the connecting thing that I could put all that together. So It's the same for Joan Jett. You know, Susie Quattro, a lot of us owe an enormous debt to her. Fast forward really quickly. When I went back to England a few years later, I met lots of young girls my age that were all playing music because they had seen Susie Quattro. And Austin, we didn't have that access. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't have internet. We didn't even have fanzines. So I had no awareness. I didn't know that there had been a lot of female bands, you mm -hmm. know, there had been Fanny, there of had, course. there was bands in the sixties. I mean, Goldie and the Gingerbreads were like 1962. Now you can go on YouTube and look up women bands of the sixties and you will see tons of them. And I think it's really kind of a sad thing that how many more girls my age would have been starting bands if, they, if there had been that visibility, that visibility that I had access to because I happened to be in England and saw Top of the Pops, you know, where people saw Susie Quattro, it begat more musicians. Yeah, it's amazing because yeah. the, the Runaways, I was just listening to an interview with Sh Sheree Curry recently, and she said the same thing, that Susie Quattro was a huge influence. And if you look at 
the bands that came before the Go-Go's. You mentioned Fanny, but you know specifically what Susie Quattro was doing and what the Runaways were doing. The difference between you know Susie had guys in her band, the Runaways had Kim Fowley behind the scenes, where there's this creepy type Svengali guy. And you mentioned some less than flattering things about Kim in the book. The Go-Go's never had that. The Go-Go's had a female manager. The Go-Go's had a female drum tech. It was all women making the music, playing the music, and, you know, managing the business behind the music. So if you look at The Runaways and you look at Susie, and then one thing that I didn't ever know before reading the book was the Painted Lady story Mm. and how you went. I would love for you to tell the story about being back in England and looking at an ad you know, still as a teenager in a rock magazine for an all-female band looking for a guitar player. Yeah, and, you know, again, this is why I wanted to tell my story because it's like, it's just this process that, you know, it wasn't like it was my first band when I joined the Go-Go's, whereas with some of the, the gals in that band, it was their first band. But for me, as soon as I saw Susie, that was it. And I wanted to play, I don't know if it was because I thought that guys wouldn't want me in their band or if I just wanted to feel like I had people like me, but I, it was really important to me that it be all females. So I came back to Austin, I scrounge around, I twist some arms and I put together a, a female trio. We play some shows and yes, like I said, and like you pointed out, a lot of the things I got to do were out of the support of male musicians, you know, whether it was Doug Som or the, the Thunderbirds, uh, Jimmy Vaughn, Eric Johnson gave me guitar lessons. It was just like, there was so much support, but that was a short-lived thing, that first band. And because my mom's English, we go back. I take my guitar and I think maybe this is where I'll find my band, my all-female band. I look up the Melody Maker ads as soon as I got there and I met a band and started playing with them. And I was overwhelmed. They, I, I mentioned earlier how I went back to England a few years after seeing Susie and there was musicians. That, there were so many, these girls knew so many female musicians. And I was just like, why am I like struggling so hard in Austin? And England is just full of these of these girls that play. Yeah, that band was a big part of uh, my development because, you know, if there was something for me like going to England always felt very freeing. It always made me, it, it widened my perspective. It gave me a sense of possibility that sometimes felt shrunken down when I was at home. So it, it did that again, you know, every time I went to England, one time I heard someone say, like, what do different cities represent to you? And when I think of London, I always think of independence and possibility because both times in that era of my developing musicianship, being in London had a huge part. But I love that man. Tell everybody what happened with, with Painted Lady and how you got sick and had to go to the hospital. And when you came back, you had been replaced. Yeah, I so I've been rehearsing for like, probably a month. I got a job there. I mean, I really was like, and I was probably at that point, I was 16 or 17, I think maybe 17. So I felt like I was getting better. I was being pushed to get better. We didn't have original songs. They were teaching me like Thin Lizzy and ACDC songs. And Tom Petty was really big then before he'd broken in America. And I brought ZZ Top to them. And so we're learning these songs. And 
one day I just get this like insane stomach ache and I've, I've actually struggled with it on and off for, for many, many years, not so much lately, but um, it was bad. And I had to go to the hospital and I was in the hospital probably overnight. And when I went back, we were, we had been practicing for our first real gig. We'd done a couple of pub things, but um, I go trucking over and I see them and they have replaced me. And it was my first time to get kicked out of the band. And I was, wow, it was devastating. But I mean, when I wrote this book, it was important to me that my reader feel like they're right there with me. And I think I succeeded in that. Oh, a hundred percent. I felt like I was right there with you. And when you told the story about Kelly Johnson being your replacement in Painted Lady, I had no idea, one, that Painted Lady would later change their name and become a band that was also influential in their own right, and that Kelly Johnson would later play in a band with you in L.A. decades after. When I saw Kelly, I was just like, this is like the best rock star I've ever seen. That's a woman. I didn't fight it at all. But the good thing was, while I was there, I had gotten hip to punk rock. So very quickly. And when I, when I answer the question, it kind of sounds like, oh, and then this happened and then that happened. And I just want to stress to people that it doesn't read like that, but, but it's, I, I can't be like a literary speaker all the time, but I thought, okay, this sucks. I've been kicked out of a band, but she's a rock star. I kind of get it. I'm going to go back and start the first punk rock band in Austin. And that's what I did. And let's let's tell everybody before everyone's like, well, who was who did that band become? Painted Lady later became Girl School. Oh yeah, I thought you said that. Yeah, Girl no. School, and we stayed friends from that point on. There was when the Go Go's would play in England, uh, the Girl School girls would come when they came to LA and played. We'd all hang out. I, I've got some good story. I couldn't tell all my stories. It's too bad, but I have some good stories of of us all hanging out and I lived right up the street from the whiskey and Nikki Six from Motley Crue lived down the street and there was like this whole Hollywood scene that you just had to tumble out of bed it was almost like New York <laughs> you just tumble out of bed walk down out the door and you're on the strip and there's like the the Roxy and the whiskey and it was awesome Totally. Talk about after you came back, you said you had um, kind of discovered punk rock in London. You came back and talk about meeting up with Carla Olsen in Austin. Yeah, well, I one of the guys that had been super supportive to me took me shopping to get a bet. He said my amp sucked when I was young, before I went to England. And his name was Eddie Munoz. He later ended up in the Plimsolls playing with Peter Case. He was like the kind of a little bit of a mentor, but one day he told me he had his, that his girlfriend played guitar and my, like he blew my little mind again. I was just like, what, how could I not know this? And I met Carla and she was like, she had a red Marshall stack and a, and a like a 54 Les Paul. And I was just kind of like, I mean, I was just, I have to have a band with her. I have to have a band with her. And so we started a band called The Violators. She had just been in England too. And she was friends with Jake Riviera. And so she was hip to all the the, the stiff bands and Elvis Costello and uh, Nick Lowe and all that. And and I I love the Ramones and Blondie and I love the Sex Pistols and the Damned and all these. I mean, we just thought, and for me, what I should put in here is that when I first picked up a guitar 
my goal was to be like one of the best guitar players ever. Like now you see all these amazing women guitar players, but then there were none. And I wanted to be like, I wanted there to be like Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, Kathy Valentine. I really wanted to be that, but that meant that it would be a really long time. You know, that's a lot of playing. That's a lot of woodshedding. That's like a lot of playing in super cool bands and punk rock leveled that away. It's like, Oh, wait, I don't have to play like that. These bands are touring now. They're making records. They're getting record deals. And it kind of made the the end goal, which was to make it in a band. That's just, that's all I wanted was to make it in a band. It made that goal seem a little more attainable. Totally. You talk about seeing the Sex Pistols and, and looking at the bass player. You're like, wait a second, this guy can't play. Yeah, what stuck out in the Pistols was um, the drummer and Steve Jones. They held that whole thing together. A hundred percent. That was a, an iconic show to be at. I, I love when you, you talked about a band that you looked up to at the time you mentioned Blondie, having no idea that some of the people in Blondie and behind the scenes of Blondie would play a big part in your life and the Go-Go's life later on with Richard Goddard producing the first two albums and Clem Burke becoming an important part of your life, you know, even till this day. So it's just so funny how small the world is. Here you are starting a band with these influences, having no idea what was around the corner that these people would be a part of your life. It's incredible. And, you know, one of my favorite moments of the entire Go-Go's success story was when the Ramones sent us a telegram, you know, it's like, forget the gold record, forget this, you know, the Ramones sent us a telegram saying, congratulations, Go-Go's. Talk about a small world. The name of our program here is Rock and Roll High School. I know. Very small world. So talk about moving to LA. You moved with a friend when you were around 18 years old, you moved to LA you started writing songs because your friend ditched you because she was a little older than you were and you couldn't go to the clubs with her. And you actually started writing songs. And in that process at 18 years old, really felt for the first time like you were becoming a real musician. Yeah, I, I wrote that because it was the first time I had converged my external circumstances and feelings with or maybe I'm saying that wrong because their feelings are internal, but I, I merged it all being a musician, being a player, expressing my frustration and my hope and my abandonment and all of it started coming out in songs. I had nothing to do. I was used you have to understand in Austin, I'd been going to clubs since I was 16. I'd been hanging out. I'd seen everybody. I'd seen everybody from Ray Charles to Frank Zappa to the Ramones to Iggy Pop. I mean, I had just, that's all I did was go to clubs and go to concerts. And the drinking age was 18. So I'd been drinking for a year because I was actually 19 when I moved to LA. I get to LA, it's 21. I can't go anywhere. I don't know anyone. I'm scared. I'm living in a place that scares me. I'd never felt scared in Austin. So I, I kind of just stayed inside and pulled out the guitar. And it's crazy to me how some of, well, kind of every song I wrote in that short period of time has been a cornerstone of my success. I well, mean, that, that was when you wrote Can't Stop the World, right? Wrote Can't Stop the World, which ended up on the first album. I wrote Vacation after traveling home to visit my mom. I wrote a, a song called We Don't Get Along that 
less than a year later, I would meet Phil Seymour, who to me was a huge star because he played with Dwight Twilley and because he'd sang on Breakdown and American Girl. So to me, Phil Seymour was like this huge star. Also uh, o- Oklahoman too, right? Yes, a Midwestern or in L.A. Um, so he had just signed to Neil Bogart's album, um, uh, label Casablanca, and he chose my song to do on his debut solo album. So to me, L.A. was like the land of... That song was We Don't Get Along, right? Which you yeah. wrote kind of as a commentary on how crappy your friend was treating you when she was going out to all the clubs and you were stuck at home, right? Yeah, all my songs are like real. They're like the real thing. <laughs> So then Carla moved to L.A. and you formed a group. You wanted to keep your Texas roots, so you called yourselves the Textones. Yeah, we called ourselves the Textones. We were homesick. All the Texas people like kind of hung out together. And there was this band from Dallas called the Werewolves, and they were awesome. And there was um, the Plugs, a punk band. They were from El Paso. And all the Texas people found each other. And it was this little community. And I remember meeting like Mark Benno, who was from Dallas. And if a band came through town like Doug Somm or the T-Birds, we would all hang out. So we were very into our Texas identity. So we became the Textones, and I thought we were going to make it. I mean, it never occurred to me I was not going to make it. A couple of early stories you tell about those Textone days I didn't know and I found very amusing. One was, who was the first live show that you saw in L.A. after moving there? Because in the Valley, you could get in a little younger than 21. Do you remember who that band was? Uh, I saw the (laughs) Go-Go's. What'd you think? I saw the Go-Go's and I, I went with my friend, Charlie Quintana, who was in the plugs and I saw them playing and it was at the Rock Corporation in the Valley. And I was like, oh, they got a ways to go. I mean, I thought I was, <laughs> I thought I was a seasoned pro and they just seemed like they were starting out. So I, to me, we were, if you had told me that night, you're going to be in this band, I would have said, no, 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 no. Because I mean, I wanted to make it. And the further along you were, the more chance you would make it. And they seemed like they were back where I had been a few years before. And talk about you and Carla taking out an ad in Music Connection, your own ad, like you had joined Painted Lady a couple of years earlier. Who was the drummer that showed up to audition for the Textones? <laughs> yeah, this girl shows up and um, we judged her right away. We were very judgy about how people looked. I remember once I was at the Starwood and I met this guy that I just thought was some hippie guy. And I found out later that it was Steve Cropper. And I freaked out that I had met Steve Cropper and hadn't even said, like, hadn't even, like, you know, worshipped at him. So anyway, I I learned my lesson about judginess. Um, But (laughs) before that, so this girl comes over and she's got this big afro and she's got these big, like, 70s glasses and overalls and weird shoes. And we're just like, eh. We didn't even take it to the next step of playing together. We just looked at her and said, no, she's not right. Well, she turned out to be Gina Shaw. She tried out for the Go-Go's and they, she changed them. She's the, she's the reason I could see them a year later and go, this is a great band. So she made them into contenders and they in turn made her into a contender with a, a makeover. And she, you know, I think the next time I, I don't think I realized it was the same girl when I saw them a year later. We keep going back to the small world of it all, right? 
Crazy, yeah, yeah. And I, I love noticing that in the book and just writing about these little orbits that are just kind of, again, I highly recommend writing a memoir to anybody. If you ever wanted to see these cool patterns and um, orbits and how they kind of work in your life, it's, it's a neat thing to do. Yeah, and I highly recommend reading Kathy's <laughs> memoir, All I Ever Wanted. Maybe it'll uh, inspire you, yeah. So All I Ever Wanted, the title, is actually the second line of probably your most famous song that you wrote, that you originally wrote, like you said, when you went back home to Austin, flew back to L.A., met up with a guy who inspired you to start writing a song on the plane ride back, and you called it Vacation, and you originally recorded it with the text tones. I think that we may have a version of the text tones Vacation. Can we hear a little of that? Vacation, just another also mentioned the Textones having some interesting gigs. You talked about not just now you were in the same room as Steve Cropper and didn't recognize him. Who was the inmate that jammed with the Textones at a prison gig? Talk about not recognizing somebody. Oh my God. So we got this gig at Chino Prison and um, with a few other bands and we were the only band that had women in it. And, you know, I was like, very fascinated by the whole idea of prisons. I don't know why that, that kind of killed it though, like going in there, but um, the fascination, but we're, we're playing for a medium security inmates. And um, one of the people came up and, and gestured to us. And he said, we have a trustee that wants to jam with you guys. And we were like, okay, why not? And this guy lumbers up on stage and it's buddy miles. It's freaking buddy miles. And um, so we jam with buddy miles another time at a rehearsal room. This is insane. So we had decided to work up a cover of Second That Emotion and we're practicing it. And we're at SIR on Santa Monica and Vine. We're practicing Second That Emotion and the rehearsal room door opens and Smokey Robinson walked in and he sang the song with us at our rehearsal. And this was like, this was all like to me, like things like these were just these omens. Oh, this is like the magic of LA, like that feeling like anything can happen, you know? And I mean, that's how I felt. I felt like anything could happen. Well, the one thing that I would stress to everyone hearing this is that all these things that are happening to you, you know, Buddy Miles jamming with you in prison or Smokey Robinson singing his own song with the text tones in rehearsal at SIR, you were 21 years old. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, I think I was actually 20 when those things happened. And then my 21st birthday party like Robin Zander came and jammed and Moon Martin. It was just like, to me, like, why shouldn't I make it? It seemed like anything could happen. So let's fast forward to the end of 1980. And one of the other things that I love so much about your book is you do such a great job of putting your personal history in the context of things that are going on in the world. And towards the end of 1980, a lot of things happened in rapid succession. So John Lennon, who was an idol of yours, was killed. 
on Christmas night, you went to the whiskey, you saw X, you went to the bathroom at the exact same moment as somebody else, and your life changed. Yeah, I I, I met Charlotte Kathy from the Go-Go's. They knew who I was. The guy that worked for them had also been worked for the Runaways, and I had met him. So it's, again, one of those little small world, little concentric circles zooming around in the orbit. So he had suggested when, when they found out uh, their bass player was not going to be able to do some shows, he had said, what about Kathy Valentine? He knew me because he'd worked for, I didn't say this, he worked for the Runaways. I'd met him when he worked for the Runaways in Austin, and they came through Austin, which is the first time I'd ever hung out with a band on the road. So he had suggested me, they knew who I was. Belinda had been at my 21st birthday party at the beginning of that year, although I hadn't met her. I'd never met any of the Go-Go's. But Charlotte walked up to me. She said, we have four nights, two shows a night, eight shows sold out at the Whiskey in five days. Do you play bass? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I play bass. And um, can you do the gigs? I'm like, yeah, I can do them. And that was probably the single most life-defining moment of my life. But did you play bass, Kathy? I had I had held a bass, you know, in my earlier <laughs> Close band. Enough. In my earlier bands, sometimes we would kind of, like young bands when I was like 14, sometimes we would like trade off instruments. But I'd never aspired to be a bass player. I'd never played more than one song, certainly, and certainly never live or, you know, in a professional sense. So, no, it was it was new, but I wasn't worried about it. I mean, I've, I've been playing guitar for five years, you know, so I thought, sure, I can play two less strings. <laughs> How did you prepare for those gigs? They they gave me, um, and this is all in the documentary, they, they, they really played this part up. I was given a cassette, I had a little cassette player. I borrowed a bass. This was all the next morning after I met her. And I proceeded to spend the next three days just over and over and over learning those songs. I was like a college student cramming for finals or something. And I, I as I did that, I wasn't partying. I needed every minute I could focus. And um, But I stayed up probably all night for... I probably just did this nonstop and um, I didn't want to mess up. I started loving the band. Listening to that tape is when I started to love the band. And how were the rehearsals? I had two rehearsals and they were, I was nervous. I was nervous, but at the same time, something felt like it was clicking. You know, it's, I'd always been the one to start a band. I had never really walked into a situation. Well, I guess with the, the painted lady girl school girls, I kind of did. But this was different. It was really different. And there was something about, I just wanted it to work really bad. I really wanted this. I mean, this band, probably, if, if nothing else, I'm a strategist. And I just saw, this is what you want. This is the band that can do it. The door is open. My foot's in the door. Now, how can I get my whole body in there? And what was that first show on New Year's Eve 1980 like? It was um, the best time I'd ever had as a musician. I had done some really cool things. And, uh, you know, I'd played in different cities. I'd played, you know, I'd, I'd probably done, you know, I think some pretty cool stuff. But I'd never been in a band where it was sold out 
and the audience was going completely berserk. I mean, it didn't feel like you had to prove anything in the Go-Go's. The, the people already loved us. And before, I'd always felt like uh, like you, we were trying to prove something or trying to get people to like you, you know, and to have that. It's like a relationship. Like, you know, if you like meet somebody and you're just trying to get them to like you, how it sucks. But every now and then it just clicks and they like you and you like them and there's no there's no effort to it. That's how it felt. So the band starts to really get a name for itself in L.A. And Ginger, your manager, starts um, running around trying to get the band a record deal. But nobody was interested, even though the band was selling tickets and had real fans. The reason that was given to us was that there hadn't been a successful all-female band before. And um, the fact that the songs were good and that we were selling clubs out in California wasn't enough to make them make that jump. But finally, somebody decided that he and his label, his independent label, would come in and, and give the girls a shot and sign the Go-Go's to his label. Yeah, Miles Copeland came in and he had his eye on the band for a while. And when it became kind of clear that this was the only chance we were going to have to make a record and move forward, we, you know, were interested. And when we went to IRS and met, you know, the, the wonderful people that worked that were just, just wonderful. Their enthusiasm, I think really sold the band. We were proud and happy to be signed to IRS. And it was Miles who suggested that Blondie's original producer, Richard Goderer, make the first Go-Go's album. Yeah. Yeah. Miles suggested, um, Richard, and I was thrilled with the choice. I wasn't one of these people that paid a lot of attention to who produced records, but when he was suggested and I dug into Richard's credits, I felt like this was a brilliant choice for the band. Because not only did Richard produce the first two Blondie records, but he was in bands himself in the 60s and had written some of these great 60s songs like I Want Candy. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, and it felt there was a sensibility that I think matched us. You know, these are not, they're not throwaway songs, but they're, they don't, it's, there was a, a lightness and a tongue-in-cheek thing that really matched the sensibility of the Go-Go's. And every song on that first album was written by the band. So Our Lips Are Sealed, We Got the Beat, the two singles off that album had been written by Charlotte, and Jane, is that uh -huh. right? Yeah. And, and then when it came time to find the last song for the record, Richard suggested a cover. And you guys banded together and said, no, they have to be all original songs. And it was Charlotte who suggested to Richard and the rest of the band that, hey, Kathy has a song. Yeah, yeah. So at that point, Charlotte was like, to me, like my you know, my knight in shining armor. She's the one that asked me to do the gigs. She's the one that came to me and said, would you stay in, in the band and be permanent and not be temporary? And she's the one that spoke up and said, I think this would be a good song to add to the album. So again, that context is really good for my readers to know because later on, as Charlotte starts becoming less functioning, you know, and our relationship became more strained. 
it was really hard for me because she was kind of the, I don't know, the glue to, to me that, or the, she was so much the impetus of, of where I was and what I'd achieved in that band. And in the beginning, when you were in the studio making that first album, Charlotte was really the principal songwriter of the band at that point. And for her to point to you and say, you know, Kathy's got a song too, validated you not only as a bass player, not only as a member of the band, but as a, a real contributing songwriter to the band. And, and that song, Can't Stop the World, is a fantastic song. You know, it's the last song on the album, and it's a song that had there been more singles released from that album would absolutely have been a single. Maybe I, I, but it, absolutely, I felt, God, it just meant everything to me because even though I'd been in the band five or six months and we'd been doing gigs and I'd been a part of getting a record deal, you know, I was part of the chemistry that made it take that final thing. I still was very insecure. A lot of my confidence was bravado and an affront. I mean, this is what I had been doing my whole life was like any insecurity, any, any, uh, doubt any self-doubt just got that didn't help me that got shoved away so that was huge for me to not feel like I was some like last minute interloper but that I had something to contribute on what was to become our most um, successful album the stories that you tell about you and your bandmates in New York that first time making the record are they're they're joyous they're happy they're funny you know throwing things out onto the street and watching people's reaction it's like you're all really kids yeah. and you're having like just the best time and there's only one thing wrong tell us <laughs> what happened uh when the label called you in to hear the final album well like making the album almost seemed like a secondary thing i mean for me i had made it not only was I in a band that people loved that had cool songs with, with my best friends, but we had a record deal. And then on top of that, we're staying in a hotel. Who gets to stay in a hotel for like eight weeks and um, making an album? So to me, we'd made it. We had absolutely made it. And we were going to go on tour. So I was kind of set. That was it. But when we heard the album, it didn't sound like what we thought we were going to sound like. It didn't sound like how we sounded live, which is pretty raucous and, you know, all the way up and um, edgy. You know, it didn't sound like that. It didn't sound like the Ramones. It didn't sound, it sounded to us like sterile. And we were, we were very disappointed and we were mad at Richard. We were mad at Richard. You know, today when I see him, I laugh still to this day because, you know, Thank God he had the, the foresight to, to make our songs sound how they sound, which is classic and eternal. And they don't sound dated. I mean, I hear them come on the radio today. I hear them at the supermarket. I hear them, you know, I hear them and I'm like, I'm not like, oh, that sounds so dated. I'm like, this holds up. <laughs> so uh, we owe a huge debt to Richard for that. You talked about how excited you were to go out on the road to support the album, even if you didn't love the final 
product in, in the beginning. But talk about, you know, the beginning of the, the album comes out, you start this slow ride to the top, and you guys go on tour. And then the label asks you to shoot a music video. Talk about MTV and what MTV's role and influence had in getting the band's music out to the world. Well, at the time, you know, MTV was new. Uh, the idea of video seemed weird. We didn't have a lot of days off and they wanted us to do this on a day off, which, you know, I thought sucked. The few videos I had seen seemed like they had some kind of, production value like little movies or storylines and ours was just this leftover budget from a, a police video it was like okay we rented this car you guys drive around in it so it was embarrassing I felt stupid I felt like it was like just dumb and weird and the one part that I was on board with was we went to what's now the Viper Room, but then it was um, the Central, I think. And we went in and used their stage and played live and they got footage of that. And I was like, OK, good. At least they show that we're a band because the rest of it, I was just annoyed. And it turned out to, you know, that was part of the process of learning that what I think isn't always right. But it turned out MTV was huge for us because... We were working our ass off. We were playing every club that that I called it the punk rock, you know, Chitlin circuit. We were playing all these places that, that every band played and we were selling out. We weren't just selling out L.A. anymore. We could pull into any city. We could pull into Minneapolis or Houston or Boston or Atlanta and we'd sell out the club. And then we'd go to the radio station and we would do all the stuff you do to try to make them play your record. IRS didn't have like the big promoters that they um, or the radio promo people. You know, we had Michael Plan, who was like a little bulldog, but we didn't have that budget to like make them pay attention. So we did everything. We did everything that was asked. All someone had to say was just give us a schedule and we just did it all. And yet we wouldn't get the ads. We wouldn't get the radio ads. So MTV is beaming us into people's living rooms. And it's the same thing that Susie Quattro was for me. It was visibility. Uh -huh. And it was young girls that couldn't go to the Agora in Cleveland, but they could turn on the TV, the cable and see the Go-Go's and go out with their allowance and buy our record or buy our single. And so it just started going like that, the, the sales, the visibility, and all of a sudden they had to add us. You talk about how Susie Quattro inspired you and gave you proof of concept that being a female musician, you know, you could actually be as successful as your male counterparts. And the Go-Go is kind of paying it forward for a whole nother generation of female musicians. In the documentary, you know, uh, Kathleen Hanna speaks uh, lovingly about how the Go-Go's inspired her work in, in Bikini Kill and La Tigra. And I, I heard a podcast with you also talking about the influence that Kelly and Kim Deal you know, have said publicly about how the Go-Go's inspired the Breeders and the Pixies and, and the music that they made. So it's just, it's this cycle, it's the gift that keeps giving with exposure when a young girl who is trying to envision her future can look up and see the Go-Go's playing, you know, Our Lips Are Sealed in a club with instruments 
and that there is nobody pulling the strings behind them, like, yeah, I can do this too. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, that Kathleen Hanna says that I, that I really like is we were just being ourselves, but she said there was something about the fact that we were having fun, you know, like really struck her that we weren't being these, it wasn't like this overt um, sexualizing. It was feminine, but fun, but not like using any devices or gimmicks, really. It was just, you know, and I, I like that, that 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 had an effect too. Yeah, I mean, the album eventually, the, the first album, Beauty and the Beat, which was uh, Belinda's title. Is that right? Yeah, Belinda came up with the title. And everyone was like, yep, that's it. Yeah. That works. Yeah. And I love the story that you tell. We're looking at the uh, album cover now. And I love the story that you tell about Ginger and the towels. Do you want to tell that? <laughs> yeah. Ginger went and once we came up with the title, we brainstormed conceptually how it could look. And Ginger went and got towels from Macy's. And after we did the photo shoot, she folded them and took them back. <laughs> I don't know if a male manager would have done that. <laughs> yeah. Ginger was uh, she was pretty outrageously cool for the band. So the Beauty and the Beat album eventually goes to number one, the number one album in the country. Passes your tour mates, the police, who Sting surprises you one night and tells you that hey, your album has passed our album on the charts. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was an amazing moment because. You know, once again, it was the support and the the having kind of celebrating us and being so gracious about it. You know, it just it was a, an amazing feeling. But again, I have to stress, I felt successful before that. I mean, I was living my dream that from the minute I saw Susie Quattro and came home to start a band, this was what I wanted. This was it. So our plan was to break over like two or three albums. That's what Miles' plan was. It wasn't really for that first album. And, you know, looking back, maybe it would have been better to build slowly. Right. Who knows? But uh, that isn't how it happened. And uh, the album kind of, it made history. You write in the book that never before or since had a record written and performed by an all-female band gone to number one. Yeah, it was amazing. And um, I remember like, like, the bullet, like, do they still talk about the bullet? Like, you, you, you do like the, with a bullet. Number, number one with a bullet. Yeah, I remember that was like a big deal. Like, we'd be like, oh. And and the first single, Our Lips Are Sealed, I mean, it took some insane amount of time just to get that one to crack the top 30. like it was all going to be work 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 like we didn't know that it would actually get to that point i mean when it takes nine months for a single to crack the top 30 you know you don't really think in terms of your album going number one or the next single you know it's almost like it's a slow 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 build and then all at once everything explodes it's like a roller coaster creaking up 
And then all of a sudden you're on the top of the roller coaster. It's interesting. We talked before about how you got the validation from the other musicians, from male musicians would always validate the work that you did. But the press, you know, wasn't as generous. And the press was always being a little chauvinistic on how they referred to the band and they would call you know, the band America's Sweethearts. And you wrote, <laughs> I love this passage from the book where you say, if pop sweethearts did acid at Graceland, threw up on the floor of fancy restaurants, cheated on their boyfriends, took nasty Polaroids, made out with girls and stayed up all night writing songs and playing guitars, well, maybe their stupid label might fit. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I mean, we weren't trying to be, we we weren't packaged at all. I mean, from the minute we started, nobody, nobody called each other up and said, okay, what are we going to wear? You showed up with what you wanted to wear. We, you know, every now and then we kind of fight each other to get into the thrift store first so that we <laughs> could find the cool stuff before someone else did. So we were very much just being who we were. I mean, again, it was looking back that I kind of saw the the little box that they put us in. And, you know, it just, it felt like when, when you're not successful, you know, nobody really pays attention. But once you're successful, it's like, as a woman, sometimes it feels like, you know, you're either the ball buster or you're the bitch or you're the conniving sex pod or you're the, oh, I mean, there's just all these like. It's harder. It's, it's definitely harder. Stereotypes, and it kind of felt like we were in that box. Now, did we contribute somewhat? Maybe. I mean, because you know, we were having fun. So, I mean, it's not like it was fake. We were having fun. We were energetic. We had a, an exuberance and a joy to us. So, yeah, we weren't like trying to be uh, sultry little sex kittens or anything like that. So we weren't going to fit in that box. Sometimes that's out of your control too. Talk about the Annie Leibovitz and Rolling Stone cover shoot. Well, because yeah. that's not something that you expected what it came out to be. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was going to say. It's like, so like sometimes we do a photo session and there would be a stylist there and, and the photographer would have these ideas like, okay, why don't you put on these outfits and, why don't you hold these balloons or here's some lollipops. And sometimes we'd be like, you know, F off. No way. We're not doing that. And sometimes we're just tired and we're like, let's just get this over with. I want to go back and go to bed. So I guess in some ways you could say we contributed, but the Rolling Stone cover was, it was a difficult one because we didn't want to wear what we were being told to wear. And it was packages of underwear and t-shirts and we don't want to do it. We didn't want to do it, and we argued against it, and it was this clash of wills with us versus Annie Leibovitz, and it comes to a point where it's like it's Rolling Stone, it's the cover of Rolling Stone, this is an iconic moment with a rock star of a photographer, and you kind of get to that place like, well, what do we know? What do we really know? And I wish I could really remember because there she might have even done some shots with us in our clothes. I tried to get like outtakes. You know, I'm, I'm a very um, persistent <laughs> person. And I remember like when I was writing my book, I was like, I got to get outtakes from what photo session um, failed. One of my few failures, Actually, one of my many failures, but one of my few that I thought I might succeed at. 
but more disappointing was the headline. Uh, that's what I was going to say. Talk about that for a second. Yeah. So, you know, we come to terms with, all right. And this is right when that, like, um, Elvis Presley book had come out where he talks about, like, liking girls in their white underwear and their white panties and stuff. And so we're like, well, Elvis likes it, so maybe it's all right. And, you know, whatever way you justify, like, maybe it's all right. But then when the headline said Go-Go's put out, it felt it felt bad. It felt bad. It felt demeaning. It felt like they were making a punchline out of us. Yeah, they were taking a shot at you, and, and in doing so, you know, we're really – missing the success, the the organic, hard work driven success that the band had on their own terms, playing their own instruments, writing your own songs. And yeah. then, you know, to kind of sabotage a photo shoot and to do a stupid headline that cut at the authenticity of the band was really uncalled for. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, they've been called out for this a lot, for a lot of covers a lot of uh, sexism so we i think we are just if there was a class action suit we could be in it <laughs> there's a scene in Allison Elwood's movie where Ginger calls Jan Winner and complains about the headline on the cover of of the magazine yeah yeah i, I didn't know this story and she she says in the film that he said i thought you were calling to thank me and hangs up the phone on her yeah Right. Well, let's talk about Ginger a little bit and her role in the success of the band. You know, obviously, she's not somebody as well known now as you or Jane or Kathy or Charlotte or Gina, but she played a really important role in the career of the band. Yeah, Ginger was uh, like the, the sixth band member. Before I was in the band, she sold her car and stuff to send the band to England to open for Madness and the specials. She really put everything on the line for this band. She believed in the Go-Go's before anybody and throughout. So she had a, a lot, lot to do with just feeling like we had somebody on our side. One of the things that I didn't know before reading your book was how much family there was in in the band. And one of my main takeaways from your book was that you really had two families. You know, you had your mom uh, and your grandma and, you know, that that side of your family and you had the band, you know, and the band really became the sisters that you never had. And the band was there for each other like families should be. Like, you know, Gina had heart surgery and everybody went with Gina to the doctor, you know. And, you know, when Charlotte really was in the throes of addiction, the band, you know, supported her her recovery. And even when Ginger accompanied you unexpectedly to end a pregnancy, you know, that's things that family, family does. I I actually, the only thing I would change from what you said is that I didn't feel like I had a family until the Go-Go's. Me and my mom didn't feel, it, like to me as a kid, that wasn't what a family was, was just two people. And my mom was just my mom and wasn't a, a, as much of a parent as I, you know, maybe she felt more like a parent than a friend. I might have, but so the Go-Go's was really the first family. And I, I envisioned that part of being in a band was wanting to feel like I belong to a family. And I did and still feel like 
they were sisters to me. And the dynamic has uh, got all the height of dysfunction and toxicity that some families can have and some of the, the growing up together and every element that a family can go through, we, we have gone through. Right. The good and the bad and the ups and the downs. And yeah. then you talk about in the book how money changes everything specifically, you know, with the dynamics of the intraband dynamics, specifically you write about music publishing yeah. and song splits. Can you, can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah. And I really tried to pull back the curtain because it's a, a mystery to a lot of people as to why that's a problem. I mean, it can seem very black and white to a, to a fan, a casual fan, and it's not black and white. There's no, there's no right way to do this or wrong way to do this. It's really what the band does and what's, what's best for the band. So with us, the problem became that everybody is out doing an equal amount of work. Like I said, it took nine months to get our first single into the top 30. It wasn't just the songwriter doing the work. It was the whole band doing the work. And by the time we got paid, there had been the whole band doing lots and lots of work. So when we first got our first paychecks after selling a million records, there was huge discrepancies. And I was kind of in the middle. And I wasn't really in it for the money anyway. I was in it to live my dream, to play rock and roll, to be in a band and to have the time of my life. And I would have done it for free. I would have done it for free. <laughs> I knew that this was going to be a problem because I'm like, oh shit, you know, some very key members that have a lot to do with this band's success have not made near what the songwriters have made, including me. And I knew it was going to be a problem. And what I really tried to get across in this book, too, is like I went from being so driven to make it in a band to being driven to keeping it. It's like nobody gets this. How I mean, every band I knew had not come near what the Go-Go's had done. Everyone, every musician I'd been, you know, knew in L.A., nobody had done what the Go-Go's had done. And it was like the most imperative, motivating driving thing I had was to keep this together. So from that point on, I worried. I was just like worried, desperately worried. Like what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Oh my God, what can we do? You know, next record. Okay. Let's make sure that the people that don't write, write more songs. And it, it just, so pulling that curtain back and showing readers that don't know the mechanism or quite understand. And I'm very fair. I think very, I don't say anybody's wrong for wanting to keep their songwriting credit. And I don't say anybody's wrong for wanting equal money for doing equal work. So, but something like that is not a, an issue like that with income discrepancy is not an easy fix. And you write in the book that the song publishing income situation grew like a cancer mm -hmm. and it ultimately ended up fraying the band. Oh yeah. I think even, I think it's, I think we'll always be an issue, you know, and whether people want to say that, I'll say it. I think it will always be an issue in this band and it's probably will always have a, you know, a, re, a be a part of, why we don't do as much, which is a lot of things. But uh, yeah, I mean, generally what you have to just do is decide, you know, it's almost like an, an ethical kind of uh, dilemma, whether you want to do a utilitarian approach, like what is good for the whole, what's good for everybody, mm -hmm. you know? And 
you know, compromise. Like I, I often think if I have, a, if I made it again in a band, if I made it again and I was the only songwriter and we were having hits with all my songs, I would give everybody an equal share as long as they were in the band. If they were out, and I would keep my name on it. Nobody gets their name on my song, but that's what I would do. To mm -hmm. me, that's what I've learned. If everybody's working, why not split it up? If they're not working, you still always have your name, your credit. And, you know, if you get a license 20 years after the band broke up, it's your money. You're the right. songwriter. Right. But if you're all out there making that license happen. So anyway, I have my own thoughts about that. There's an expression in England where there's a hit, there's a writ. Meaning that lawsuits tend to fly whenever there's money at stake. And the band was not immune from that. No, no, we were not. And um, and we did try to deal with it at the beginning. We just didn't know we were going to sell millions of records. Right. So, so at the beginning, it's like, okay, whether you wrote a song or not, you're going to get 8% of everything. And that's like, yay, that sounds great. Until like somebody's getting, you know, $100,000 and somebody else is getting a million bucks. You right. know? So, right. so your solution at the beginning, and I'm just making those numbers up. That wasn't the real numbers. It's like anything. It's like, you know, sometimes you have to figure it out along the way. But I also understand the idea of like, hey, it's my song and you know, I, I get that, too. The band dynamic is a very tricky dynamic, and no one will know how tricky it is unless you lived it. You know, you can be in a band, but until you have the success that a band like the Go-Go's had, you can't understand, you know, the interpersonal dynamic that, that goes in. And, and another thing that I took away from the movie and from the book is that you guys have a bond that's unique, that is shared by no one else. So you've had your ups, you've had your downs, but you will always have that connection. Yeah. And it's proven to be stronger than a lot of negative, horrible stuff, you know, <laughs> When I started my book, I was kicked out of the band. It, I, I was in one of the worst times of my entire life. And, you know, I came to a place where I realized this wasn't personal against me. This was the manifestation of a dysfunction that was getting more and more toxic and poisonous. So that helped. But also it was a conscious decision. Like, I'm not going to let what happened with us poison the joy and the the accomplishments and the best things that ever happened to me. I'm not going to let that do that. It's like, you know, it's like an ugly divorce, you know, just because you have a divorce doesn't mean you can't be great parents to your kid. It doesn't mean you can't, you know, take the good stuff with that person unless they're just like horrible, I guess. <laughs> The capacity for forgiveness and not holding grudges is that's good. That's good for me. I always do what's good for me. What's good totally. for me is to forgive and to let go and not have a grudge and celebrate what was good. And that was amazing for me because before I finished the book, I got back in the band. We cleared the air. We went on to work together again, do the documentary. And it was just a part of that healing was me being able to write this book and let go of any animosity I would have rightfully for um, the bad stuff that had happened. There was a, a lawsuit in 1990. There's been some really bad stuff, but what's stronger is, you know, the bond between the bandmates and the legacy of the band. And I saw that you have tour dates whenever this pandemic is over, the band will be back on the road. I hope so. I mean, it's a really fun band. It's and 
as a musician, I feel incredibly lucky. I mean, I get to go out and play to thousands of people that love the band, that want to be there, that know your songs, that are you know, not standing back, like, eh, show me what, eh. you know, they're into it and, and get paid and stay in nice hotels. And it's like the, the incredible luxury. It's the, I wish every single musician got to experience that because it is the top of what it can be like. At the same time, I play music, you know, I'll go play, you know, I'll, I'll do a gig anywhere and have fun because I'm playing music. And I, you're a, you're a musician. That's what you do. You, you can't not do it. You talk about in the book, you can't not do it. I mean, what, what's crazy is, um, you know, looking back on the legacy of the Go-Go's, the Broadway show, which so many people loved, Head Over Heels, is titled after a song that you co-wrote. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the bands, um, the second album titled Vacation, named after a song you wrote, you know, your legacy is so indelibly linked with this band that, you know, they're a part of you, but you're a part of them. I think so. And there was a, I almost felt like it was a little bit of hubris, but at one point in my book, I wrote the effect that they had on me was the equal to the effect I would have on them. And it's almost like, I think I even looked up physics laws to find out if there was a physics law that matched that. And I found it. So, yeah, I, I feel like, I feel like I definitely left my mark and, and had a huge part and, and what happened in the band. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to um, go back to the book one more time. And again, for anyone hearing this, um, Kathy's memoir, All I Ever Wanted, is really a must read for anyone who's interested in Kathy, in the go-go's, in music, and really just in an incredible life story of, um, you know, somebody who kind of started the odds were against her and really ended up creating some incredible things. But you talk very openly in the book, Kathy, about things that are very private. And the chapter about getting sober and starting an AA is very powerful. And you write that sobriety is the foundation of your life. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah. And one of the reasons I felt like I could write about number one, I've, I've taken writing classes and I have um, read a lot and I, I would have never written a book if I didn't feel like I could do a good job at it because that's just how I am. I have no interest in doing something half-assed or mediocre, but um, I, one of the reasons I knew I could write well was because I had been writing about my sobriety each time I had an anniversary on social media and it always resonated really strongly with people in a way that surprised me and made me feel like I was being of service. So um, that, that background made me realize that this is a, a way that I can help people, you know, because, you know, there's a lot of, I think my story is my story and it's very similar to a lot of people's stories. And, I wasn't in jail and I hadn't gone crazy and I hadn't killed anybody or, you know, OD'd these terrible things that can happen in the grips of, of addiction. I was a very high functioning controlling user to keep feelings away, to use a tool that I had become accustomed to using. So I think that was a really important thing to write about because, you know, I think a lot of people don't, I certainly didn't think I had a problem. And even when I thought I had a problem, I couldn't imagine 
living without that. So it became, you know, crucial to me that I figure out how to control this problem. And I think that that's a, a story that a lot of people can relate to. And that's why I wanted to tell it the, the way it is. A hundred percent. I mean, it's really a survivor story too. And the book is also tinged with sadness because so many of the people that you write about aren't alive anymore. You know, I I didn't realize I was friendly with Craig Aronson. I didn't realize that he was your drummer in World's Cutest Killers, one of your um, post-Go-Go's bands. And then as recently as a couple of weeks ago, your beloved tour manager, Bruce, passed away who you write about so lovingly in the book. And there's there's definitely a sadness that is part of the story, but ultimately it's about survival and it's about, you know, surviving against the odds and, and you know, a life really buoyed by, by music and the belief that, you know, rock and roll can save your soul, as they say. Yeah, and, you know, I, I chose the time frame. Uh, one thing I've gotten from people is like, why did you stop there? Why didn't you write about this and that? Like I'd copped out or something. And, you know, I like a uh, serial memorist. I like uh, Mary Carr and uh, Augustine Burroughs and people that take slices of their life. It's not an autobiography. It wasn't the Go-Go's history. It was a story. And I chose with deliberate intention, a story arc that had me starting out with obstacles and going over it to a certain place and ending up a changed person. And I will write another memoir at some point because I have another big journey that's just as compelling. It might not be making it to the top in an all-female band, but there's other things in life that are compelling too. So um, Can't wait to read it. Yeah, I'm, 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 it won't be my next book, but it will be, you know, God willing, the third or fourth. Amazing. So before we wrap up, I had sent you a question from our friend Camille uh, over here at Warner Music, and and she wanted to to ask you, what aspects of the business today do you wish were in place back in the early 80s when you were coming up as an artist, particularly as it pertains to being a female creative in the business? Yeah, I like this question. I touched on it a little bit when I talked about uh, the Go-Go's working so hard to get our record played and it's hard to stress like what a guy's club it was I mean every program director was a man every DJ was a man that we encountered every guy that was a a promo guy every rep when we'd pull into a town and there was a rep from you know, A&M or something was a guy. I mean, it was just like, it seemed like men ran the business, you know. Um, There was some women that were in marketing and there was women that were in law. And what I see now is women in all kinds of positions. And I think it would have been really great to have some women in positions of, of power when we were coming up. Because I think there would have been more females. I think our record... Would have had more single. I don't know. I just feel like it could have made a difference, you know. And again, it's not like anyone was pushing us away. I mean, there was resistance, but I wonder if there had been more women in, in real like positions of power. What that might have mm-hmm. uh, that might have been a different kind of playing field. Final question: Any advice for young women just starting out in music or in the music business? I would always say 
be as creative as you can make it. So you, I mean, the business is very different now, but to me, being able to record, knowing how to engineer, make something, create beats, write a song, perform instruments, know your way around software. I mean, to me, the more things you can do, the better. That way you have possibilities. I mean, it's like you want to be able to plug into an entire power strip of outlets, not just fit into one. And I also, the biggest advice I wish I could have given myself was that I was so fixated. I put everything into believing into making it in a band. And I don't think I believed in myself enough. And it took me probably until the age of 40 where I really started to feel confident that I was a really good songwriter, musician, producer, arranger, that I was good. I wasn't just okay. I was highly skilled at being that. Age 40, after all the success, that's... And then it probably took me another 10, 15 years to go, I've got a lot to say. I am relatable. I have a strong message. I can do other things. I can do other, I can sing, I can do this, I can speak, I can act, I can write a book, I can go to school, I can get a PhD. So believing in in yourself as well as the big thing that you're after. I think I eclipsed, I think that's my main, don't forget to believe in yourself. Awesome. Well, again, I would recommend, highly recommend that everyone read Kathy's book, All I Ever Wanted, and also go to your favorite streaming service and listen to the companion playlist where Kathy has written a new piece of music for every chapter in the book, which is a fun companion as you read the book to listen to the music. And I would also encourage everybody to watch Alison Elwood's brilliant documentary about Kathy and the band The Go-Go's. Kathy, thank you so much. This was excellent. Oh, awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot for tuning in to Rock and Roll High School. Thanks to our guest, Kathy Valentine. You can find out more about her current projects and connect with her social media at kathyvalentine.com. We'll see you next time for another Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Avery Landau, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.